0: This is Planetary Radio. Mars is receding and school has begun, which is why you need a new Planetary Radio show more than ever. Hello again, everyone. We're back with Public Radio's half hour devoted to space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan. This week, a visit with the starship Voyager's sometimes cranky doctor. It may have been actor Robert Picardo's most famous role, but there's much more to this talented fellow who cares deeply about our destiny in the solar system and beyond. We'll begin our visit with him right after Emily visits beautiful blue
1: Uranus.
2: I'm Emily Lakdawalla with questions and answers. A listener asked, Why is Uranus's face so bland? Unlike the brightly colored atmospheres of Saturn and Jupiter, Uranus's atmosphere appears to be a muted, serene blue. However, the atmospheres of all of the giant planets are actually very similar. All of the giant planet atmospheres are organized into horizontal bands of varying color and brightness. These horizontal band structures are thought to result from atmospheric convection caused by a balance between the heating of the atmosphere from above by the Sun and from below by internal heat sources. Giant Jupiter and Saturn have a large internal heat supply, and so have active, bright-colored atmospheres. But muted Uranus has virtually no internal heat. Strangely, Neptune, which is very similar to Uranus in size and composition, does have a strong internal heat source. The combination of its strong internal heat source and relatively small size makes Neptune the windiest giant planet with wind speeds approaching the speed of sound, over 500 meters per second or over 6,000 miles per hour. So within all this drama, Uranus indeed seems to be a very boring place. But that may change soon. Stay tuned to Planetary Radio to find out why.
0: Please state the nature of the medical emergency. That may mean nothing to you, but Star Trek fans know the emergency medical hologram has just materialized out of thin air. Accomplished actor Robert Picardo played that role on Voyager for seven years. You may remember him as Dr. Dick Richard on China Beach, or Mr. Cutlip on The Wonder Years, or... From more than 50 movie appearances, but his latest role has him directing a very special stage performance on behalf of the Planetary Society. An evening with Galileo and his daughter will mark the spectacular end of the Galileo spacecraft as it crashes into Jupiter. We met at Picardo's home to talk about this event, the benefit performance, that is, not the spacecraft, and whether holographic doctors dream of half cyborg women. Bob Picardo, how did you get roped into uh, directing this
3: uh, staged reading of Galileo's daughter? Well, Matt, I've been on the advisory board of the Planetary Society for about five years now. Uh, I did one of their last fundraisers, a reading an evening of uh, Ray Bradbury. Uh, Pieces um, that we were honored to have Mr. Bradbury there. It was, of course, a celebration of his birthday as well. And that was a very successful event. They had wonderful people participating, and I was proud to be part of that. And they asked this time, since there wasn't a role for me in the show, if I would consider directing it. So this time I'm directing An Evening with Galileo and His Daughter, based on the best-selling book by Davis Sobel. Uh, Ms. Sobel will also function as our narrator in the piece, and it will hmm. star John Reese Davies and Linda Pearl. That's quite a cast. That certainly is. Linda Pearl is an actress I've been friends with, and, and uh, since I worked with her some twenty years ago, and she's a really a tremendous talent. And of course, John Reese Davies uh, is is also a, uh, just an extraordinary extraordinary not only an actor, but just a just a wonderfully educated man who's a pleasure to be uh, to be around. And he projects all of that uh, intellectual fire that uh, that you would you would hope for Galileo.
0: You and these two actors are incredibly busy people. In fact, we catch you now just before you have to be
3: back at the studio. I think I have a night shoot tonight for a new TV series I'm working on called Lions Den. So I will hmm. be uh, I'll be on the back lot uh, till about uh, three tomorrow morning. I want to come back to that TV uh, career that you've had a very successful one.
0: But uh, this fact that you are so busy, and Linda Pearl and John Rice Davies are so busy,
3: that's uh, making it a bit more of a challenge to pull off this uh, special program. Uh, It certainly is. Just having uh, finding out what city we were all in at any given time was pretty exciting. Although I have to admit that Mr. Davies has the the most exciting itinerary, bouncing from uh, South Africa to now he's back in England or Mm. Australia, finishing post production on the third. Um, installment of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Uh, he's been the uh, uh, he's been the hardest one to track down. But Linda Pearl is also uh, starting an international theater festival in Denver, which is a very exciting mm. project. She's been committing a lot of her time to. And I have been uh, uh, working on uh, both the, the Lions Den television series and Stargate, uh, which is uh, uh, a competitor to Star Trek. So I am in fact fraternizing with the enemy. <laughs> Uh, as I
0: said, we do want to talk about that uh, career you've had since I'm, uh, uh, it's no secret to this audience, I think I'm an old time Star Trek fan. Uh, as is the rest of my family, and we, we always felt bad for the EMH because it never quite got together with Seven of Nine. But we, we'll have to explain what all that all that means. The EMH, I mean, mention that, and then
3: we'll come back and talk about Galileo's daughter some more. Uh, my character on Voyager was a computer-generated, holographically projected doctor, the emergency medical hologram. Um, he was designed primarily for emergency medical use. I prefer to think of him as a satire of managed health care. <laughs> he was uh, not a – his bedside manner left something to be desired, and he also uh, worked as quickly as he could so that he could get rid of his patients and go back to his real interests in life, which were – Opera, mm-hmm. literature, music, and you know the occasion and chasing the occasional gorgeous blonde in a cat suit. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Although his, uh, I'd say his healthcare was a good deal more effective than a lot of the HMOs deliver nowadays.
3: Well, he, you know, he was the embodiment of everything we know about medicine in the 24th century. So he certainly had an edge. He's uh, he's a pretty pretty smart guy.
0: And this was a hologram with heart, as you say. He got to sing opera. He uh, was in a holographic version of Beowulf once. Uh, That's right. He had to
3: be a first on broadcast TV. <laughs> uh, he did like to be, he was the hero of his own fantasies. So he had a very, for Hologram, he had a very active fantasy life. He, he was constantly trying to expand uh, not only his abilities relative to his job as a crew member aboard Voyager, but also to, you know, he aspired to having some of the other exciting things that his organic uh, crewmates had in life, like, you know, fantasies, daydreams. Um, uh, He even uh, wanted to be able to sample things like real food, which, of course, he Mm. couldn't do as a hologram. He didn't have the stomach for it, literally. (laughs) So to speak. So he had to, uh, you know, he had to have the holographic stomach upgrade, those kind of things.
0: (laughs) Uh, and and a bit of romance too, or at least uh, sort of a wistful uh, hoping for, maybe with uh, Jerry Ryan, who yeah, played Seven of Nine. We
3: had a bit of a, of a Henry Higgins, Liza Doolittle relationship, where I mentored her in how to uh, how to act appropriately in social situations, and of course, when we got to the area of uh, of being. Having a date during her leisure time as a crew person, I, I of course got to stand in for the gentleman that she was on a date with, so that she could learn that kind of behavior. And in so doing, I, I, I became quite smitten with her. Although it remained uh, a secret in my heart that, that I didn't confess to her till till the very end of our run in season seven. A cyborg and, and a hologram, perfect match. They're both uh, both uh, technologically uh, created, or at least uh, she only semi. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but I think that uh, who better to understand her, uh, both her technological and her physiological needs? At least that was the pitch I gave her.
0: Now, I have two fairly young daughters. I'm told they're a little bit older than your two daughters, but they're old enough that they were able to get in on Voyager from the start. Actually, they go back to watching Next Generation
3: uh, and had a great time watching that, the well, end of the run to that series. Well, you must have got them started pretty young. I did. when Voyager premiered, my younger daughter Gina... He was now 11, was only uh, just under four. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the second episode, the doctor's program malfunctioned, and uh, I was shrunk down to sort of a squat, fire hydrant-sized <laughs> hologram. And I remember my daughter watching the show mystified, went, ooh, Daddy, get small, <laughs> Daddy, get small. And then she turned to me and went, do it, Daddy, do it. <laughs> like, like I had this command of, of parlor <laughs> tricks that I hadn't quite, you know, I hadn't shown her yet. Mm-hmm. And my older daughter was still old enough to ask me the question after the first half season of Voyager. She said, why do you? Have to drive to the studio, Daddy. Why doesn't the ship fly over and beam you on? <laughs> and I said, "Honey, it's time to come visit the set." So I, they were—they were, uh, they, they were at the beginning of, of the show. They were quite um, taken with uh, the magic of, of the future. And then, of course, after. Many years of dad being on Star Trek, they, they became, you know, quite blasé about it. We
0: should mention that you never did get a name.
3: No, I never. I spent seven years with, uh, playing a character with no name. It was kind of my fault because the original concept was that I was going to name myself after my programmer, Dr. Lewis Zimmerman, the guy who created the Emergency Medical Holocaust. Who you also played in at least one episode. That's right. I played the man that created the program and, of course, based it on his own physical mm-hmm. parameters. Early in the first season, when we were about to go on the air, we had been doing several shows where I was saying, I, I would like to have a name. I asked the, the, our captain, played by Kate Mulgrew, to have the freedom to select a name for myself. I said to our producer, are, are we going to play that storyline for a number of shows? He said, yes. And I said, well, aren't we going to kind of give it away if you refer to me in the opening credits as Dr. Lewis Zimmerman? <laughs> aren't we killing the suspense as to what name? I will eventually select, and he agreed. And so they they remade the uh, my opening credit in the show and changed mm. it mm-hmm. from Doc Zimmerman to the Doctor. And and therein we began seven years of of uh, indecisive computer program jokes, where where the computer program couldn't decide what he wanted to be called Windows twenty four hundred. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say the rest was was future or <laughs> is future history. <laughs> Andre Bormanis, who was then science advisor to uh, Voyager. Uh, and helping out with a lot of shows, said that you were a tremendous help with your character because you had a medical background or a pre-med background (laughs) before you went into this other
3: business. That's true. I I went to Yale as a biology major, and to my mother's eternal chagrin, I I shifted to my hobby, which was theater, but with her blessing. Of course, with some irony, uh, I have played uh, television doctors for 11 years, counting my four-year stint on China Beach, Mm -hmm. so there 's been some vicarious uh, thrill, I suppose, to that since that had been my childhood ambition to be a real doctor and of course, as a television doctor you don 't have to carry malpractice insurance, which is a tremendous <laughs> savings um, but uh, uh, andre um, was a, was a great friend uh, during and, and continues to be, but uh, during my run on the show, uh, we chatted quite a lot, and if I had any questions about uh, any of the Medical tech or any of the you know future tech that we did on on Voyager I could I could call and have a discussion with him I sometimes caught him up uh, on a couple hmm. of uh, uh, medical or or um, anatomical inaccuracies and he was very gracious admitting his <laughs> defeat <laughs> and and he's also uh, began my involvement with the Planetary Society which, for which I'm very grateful uh, he he got me involved with the uh, the event that I mentioned earlier, the fundraiser for for, uh, an evening with Ray Bradbury, and that began a long and very happy association with a very worthwhile organization.
0: Which is a great place for us to stop for a moment and uh, take a quick break and then come back and talk about that relationship with the society and the event that's coming up in uh, just a couple of weeks as this uh, program begins to air. And that, of course, is this uh, program, Galileo and His Daughter, which will be at the Pasadena Playhouse, I believe, on the 22nd right. We'll talk a bit more about that later. I just want to get in one more thing before the break. The yes. other way my daughters know you after they met you as the EMH on Voyager was Coach Cutlip, <laughs>
3: on, Coach the Cutlip on the Wonder Years. on the Wonder Years. <laughs> Great dialogue. The jockstrap. What is it? What can it do for you? <laughs> Planetary Radio will be right back with Bob Picardo.
0: Welcome back to Planetary Radio where our special guest is Robert Picardo, Bob Picardo of uh, Stage Screen, small and large. Uh, we were talking about mostly about your background on Voyager, but we got in the Wonder Years and you mentioned China Beach. We had just talked about your relationship with Andre Bormanis, science advisor on Voyager, and how he got you into
3: uh, the Planetary Society. That's right. I got a call uh, after this uh, evening with Ray Bradbury from Lewis Friedman, one of the found uh, founders of the planetary society asking me to be on the advisory board and i said you know lewis i'm i'm really not a scientist i just uh, played one on tv and uh, you know and, but then again look in california arnold schwarzenegger's not a governor <laughs> and yet uh, he may be one so the no, fact no that comment. i'm the fact that i'm posing as a scientist is not quite so ridiculous when you think about the wonderful wacky world we live in but he, of course he was asking me to join primarily as a because of my access to science fiction audiences at personal appearances, where I where I go uh, to talk about Star Trek, but I suspect it was more than that. But I'm sure that was a plus. Well, it's it's a plus that I I get to see all sorts of people who love Star Trek and love dreaming about the future, and say, hey, how much do you know about the current state of planetary exploration? And wouldn't it be wonderful to find out about that as well? Because there are some. If you think that's exciting on Star Trek, then you're, you're bound to find this exciting as well. It's really been a a great marriage. It's an opportunity for me to talk about it at public events and hopefully try to woo some of the sci-fi audience over to to real science. And uh, and I've been proud, uh, proud to be part of it and very excited about the different projects I've taken part in, uh, mainly... Red Rover Goes to Mars, which was an educational project for kids. So which you did a uh, video for the Planetary yes, Society. Yes, did, did a public service announcement right on the Star Trek set, for which I am mm. eternally grateful to Rick Berman and our producers for giving me the opportunity to do that. And that was a very, very successful uh, program, and there are there are new programs for um, students uh, that the Planetary Society sponsors. Those uh, students actually got to give commands to the um, Mars Global Surveyor as to where to p- conduct uh, you know, to pick sites, yeah, um, to to photograph uh, regions for sample collection, and those kids were actually giving commands to the spacecraft.
0: And I saw some of those images, and some of them even surprised some of the scientists. They yeah. they uh, really picked
3: very well, apparently. Well, that's because they're the they're the future Mars walkers. Those are the guys that that uh, those kids are going to grow up and and set foot on the planet. So it's 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 exciting to see the level of their interest and 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 wisdom at this point in their lives. So
0: you brought all that to your involvement on the advisory board, but I'll bet Lou Friedman and maybe you didn't suspect that you would be able to bring some of your other life skills and talents. uh, I'm not aware of any other life skills and talents. Well, let me mention, let me remind you. Yes. (laughs) Yes. You're going to be at the Pasadena Playhouse in about two weeks after this show. Oh,
3: of course, what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> that thing. How about that for a good segue? <laughs> um, yes, I will be there uh, directing this reading of this wonderful piece. It's brand new. It's adapted from a uh, best-selling historical book called Galileo and His Daughter. It stars two wonderful actors. It's, it's a short piece, probably about 45 minutes long, but it's a dialogue uh, that, that Davis Sobel, the uh, the author of the book has created from culling uh, various uh, works uh, of Galileo's own that he that he wrote uh, and interspersing them with letters that his daughter wrote to him um, mm. from the convent that are so so beautiful uh, uh, both in in their language and in in the passion of her commitment both to him as a, as a loving daughter but also as a as a, a follower of God I mean the most inspirational kind of, uh, of language. It's really thrilling to juxtapose his passion for discovery and the the genius this man had and all of the things that he saw for the first time in human history and how moved and excited he was with his own discoveries, with her own, to juxtapose those with her own passion for, uh, for her life, as tiny and, and small and contained as it was because of her belief. So it's really, it's, it's quite a moving evening. I'm delighted with our two actors. I'm delighted that it's for the Planetary Society. And I think... As much as anything, I'm delighted that it's in the historical Pasadena Playhouse, which is our state theater of California. It is an absolute gem. I love this theater. I've performed there twice myself. You just were on the stage there just recently. About a year ago, I starred in a musical called A Class Act, which had played on Broadway the previous season. I love this theater. I'm very grateful to the Pasadena Playhouse for offering us the theater. For such a worthy function, and, I, and I'd like to thank Sheldon Epps and Tom Ware and and uh, and everyone everyone at the Playhouse for being um, for being so terrific and so supportive for such a wonderful organization as the Planetary Society. I'm a cheerleader for the Planetary Society. That's what I do, and it's not simply because I look good in shorts. It's because I believe that that the more people find out about our efforts in space and our future efforts in space. I mean, the exciting things like the, the, the launch of the solar sail project and all these things that are going on that most people don't know about it. And when, when they hear about them by consulting the Planetary Society website or getting a copy of Planetary Magazine, you know, they're they're just amazed at, at, at what we're working on. So you
0: have a great venue for this program. You have a terrific cast. You are obviously quite inspired by the
3: material that will be performed. It's, it's, a, it's a wonderful book. As a uh, Others have said before me when the book was reviewed, it, it brings history alive and gives us a new prism with which to look at a genius like Galileo, to see the human dimension of, of viewing him through the eyes of his daughter. And also, the language is so beautiful. That's what's that was, that was what was most thrilling to me to, to read the the uh, the daughter's letters um, from her convent, her love for her father, her admiration and support of her father, but also her love for her creator and her feelings about mm-hmm. the Almighty are so um, vivid in her language that uh, I've been leaving the book lying around so that my 11 and 14 <laughs> year old daughter will say uh, worshipful things about. First of all, their father, but but as well, but then their 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 other father as well, their father in heaven. So uh, it, it's really um, it, it's it's wonderful to see to see this brought to life, um, and to see uh, to to see a, a man like Galileo in a way that you you couldn't possibly get from from a regular history book. So you are bringing something wonderful to the work of the Planetary
0: Society. I would say, scientist or not. Uh, there is the aesthetic side that uh, I There's think
3: is also to be appreciated. Yes, the material definitely struck an emotional chord in me and made me say, yes, okay, I'd like to do this, even though I haven't directed in theater for many years and, and that's not my regular job. I said I feel strongly enough about this material that I want to be part of this event.
0: I can't wait to see it. Uh, we are out of time, Bob Ricardo, and I need to let you get off to the studio.
3: That's right. What's the name of that new show that it's you're working on? It's called Lion's Den, starring Rob Lowe. It's a legal drama. It's very exciting. It's a legal drama and a thriller kind of rolled in one. And it will be on Sunday nights at 10 o'clock on NBC. Wonderful. We'll look forward to seeing you there.
0: Thanks very much for welcoming us into your home. And uh, we'll see you again, I guess, on September 22nd uh, for Galileo
3: and his daughter. At the historic Pasadena Playhouse.
2: I'm Emily Lakdawalla, back with Q&A. Uranus is the most bland of the four giant planets, with hardly any internal heat and little obvious banding in its atmosphere. But the balance between internal heat and external heat may be changing right now. Uranus's rotational axis is the most tilted of all of the planets. It is tilted 98 degrees. As a result of this nearly horizontal tilt, its south pole has been pointed at the Sun and its north pole away from the Sun for the past few decades but it is now approaching an equinox, which will occur in 2007. At that time, both hemispheres will receive equal illumination from the Sun. Planetary astronomers have begun monitoring Uranus using every available wavelength of light in order to detect seasonal change in the planet's cloud cover. We won't have conclusive information for several years, but initial hints are that Uranus may undergo some interesting changes. Stay tuned! Got a question about the Universe? Send it to us at planetaryradio@planetary.org, at And now here's Matt with more Planetary Radio.
0: Time for What's Up with the Planetary Society's Director of Projects, Bruce Betts. Bruce, welcome back. Why, thank you very much. Excited to be here as always. As always. And as always, you've got some great information for us. Where do we start?
1: We start where we started recently at Mars. Look up in the night sky, see Mars. Rises still around sunset, sets around sunrise. You can see it very easily. Still a brighter than any star in the sky. Brightest object up there except the moon. Go see it. The only, uh, speaking of the brighter object, the moon, Mars will be near the moon on both the nights of the 8th and the 9th, so uh, Monday and Tuesday evening. If for some reason you just can't find the moon or can't find Mars because they're too bright, they'll be near each other. You can find them together
0: because they're too bright. I'm going to work that one out before we finish, but go ahead.
1: (laughs) Contrary to certain radio hosts, they are too bright. (laughs) Oh, I didn't mean you, Matt. No. Anyway, moving right along, moving you can right along. also see Saturn in the early morning. We'll get back with more details as it gets easier to see. Jupiter, if you just have an incredibly flat horizon, you can see right before sunrise. But i just stick with Mars for another week or two, and then we'll start moving to the giant planets. And remember, if you can get to a telescope with Mars, that would be great, because you can see the south polar cap. You can still find a lot of events going on on our website at planetary.org slash MarsWatch2003.
0: I read that... Uh Tens of thousands of people showed up at one of the events that we were uh, pushing uh, on, on that Mars Watch section just here in L.A., up where the Griffith Observatory is not even open at the moment because it's being
1: renovated. There were so many people disappointed just standing around in the dark with nothing, no. <laughs> yes, tens of thousands of people have shown up to various Griffith Observatory events. We've gotten feedback from some of the uh, 330 events that were part of our Mars Watch. Wow. And every one of them is coming back with, we if they expected 50 people, they got Five hundred. If they expected five hundred, they got five you know, five thousand. On to this week in space history: a little bit more Mars because we just can't get enough these days. September 9th nineteen seventy-five, Viking Two was launched, and on September eleventh, nineteen ninety-seven, Mars Global Surveyor arrived at Mars. Mars Global Surveyor now. Hmm. Six years later, still functioning wonderfully, providing incredible images, uh, altimetry data, and ma- other data of Mars.
0: I'm shocked. I didn't realize that uh, Mars Global Surveyor had been there
1: anywhere near that
0: long. If you'd asked me, I would have said, oh, in three, four years, the amazing uh, photos that really it continues have, to return. Really uh, our
1: revolutionized our view of the planet with the mm. various instruments that are on board. Random space fact! Mariner 10 is the only spacecraft to have visited poor, lonely Mercury. And it did a set of clever flybys, but left us seeing only half the planet. A planet only half explored by Mariner 10. That will be rectified in coming years with the Messenger spacecraft from uh, one of the NASA Discovery missions that should be launched uh, this coming year. And then there's a European plan for Bepicolombo, a spacecraft later in this decade, to launch.
0: There's a name I hadn't heard yet. What, what was
1: that once again? Beffy Colombo. Um, I apologize Columbo. to all of those who know how to pronounce
0: There it. was a, a children's show with a similar name in uh, Los Angeles when I was a little kid. But
1: <laughs> it, it, Let's just say it's named after that. Colombo. Of course it's not.
0: I don't, don't want to make fun of our, our extremely uh, talented and resourceful European friends, but some of those things do sound kind of funny in English.
1: And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with kids' shows, darn no, it? No, not at all. All right. <laughs> How about we move on to the trivia contest and try to work our way out of this Mercury (laughs) conundrum? (laughs) Moving to Mars. Our trivia question last week. Mars Exploration Rover B, the Opportunity Rover, is going to Meridiani Planum on Mars. Why? What mineral was observed from orbit that caused intrigue about that location?
0: We have, I'm pretty sure, a past winner who uh, has picked it up again this week, randomly chosen from everybody uh, who uh, submitted the correct answer. It is Dominic Turley. Dominic, congratulations. He hails from Victoria, British Columbia, Canada. And he says Opportunity is going to the Meridiani site because it appears to be loaded with hematite, a mineral deposit that could be indicative of... Now, he puts ancient hot springs, and I guess there are other possible water-related explanations, but that's what he put.
1: And the reason, indeed, that we're excited about hematite that was observed from Mars Global Surveyor, the thermal emission spectrometer, is that it is associated, almost always, with formation in the presence of liquid water. Liquid water being one of the holy grails for Mars, of figuring out where it was in the past and present. And so the Mars Exploration Rovers, as robotic geologists, will be equipped to study and try to learn about the past history of liquid water on Mars.
0: Well, Dominic, that was good enough to get you a Mars 3D poster, which will be in the mail to you soon. Bruce, we're almost out of time. We better hurry on to the next uh, trivia question next week's.
1: All right. For next week, question about an upcoming NASA mission. One that truly is in the the spirit of demolition derbies, junkyard wars, a a number of exciting, say, uh, (laughs) testosterone-inducing type activities. The spacecraft is going to slam a roughly 500-pound ball of copper into a comet and make a big hole in the comet. There actually is a reason for this besides just fun because it exposes the, uh, the lower layers of the comet. The surface of a comet is highly altered. We'll come back and talk more about it next week. My question for you, what's the name of this mission? And if you don't know the name, what should have been the name of this mission?
0: Ooh, that's a good one. I'm glad. Well, let's get some entertaining answers, folks, and some, uh, some accurate ones, some correct ones as well. How do people get those to us, Bruce?
1: Go to planetary.org and follow the links to Planetary Radio, and you can enter our contest. And
0: that was uh, short and succinct, and we're done with what's up for this week.
1: Oh.
0: oh. It's all right. We'll be back next Monday.
1: Oh, good. Look up in the night sky and think about Squy Squy.
0: Okay. I think that was a kid show in L.A., too. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, but it is. There are words that my kids made up, and it was just a shameless plug for them. Thank you very much. Thank you, and good night. Bruce Betts. Excellent father and director of projects for the Planetary (laughs) Society
0: based in Pasadena, California. (laughs) He's here with us every week with What's Up. We're out of time. Remember that you can hear this and all our past shows at the Planetary Society's website, planetary.org. That's where you can also learn more about An Evening with Galileo and His Daughter at the Pasadena Playhouse on September 22nd. Thanks for listening and have a great week.